Let's jump into James this morning. So uh, I don't know if you realize it, but uh, there's only one Sunday left after this in uh, December in 2016. So if you've been with us for the year, uh, we have gone through our Believe series. That was 30 weeks long. We covered all these different uh, ideas that we should be thinking and acting and, and becoming in Jesus. And then we spent a few weeks um, on the feasts in Leviticus and saw how that related to our lives even today still. And then we've been in James for a few weeks, and we're going to finish that out um, next week as we look forward to the coming of Jesus, this time the, the second coming, as we celebrate the first coming. And so uh, today we'll be in the book of James again, and then in the new year we will begin a, a whole new uh, series. So James is about becoming a mature Christian, or another way of looking at it is a healthy disciple. And so the idea of a healthy disciple is that we are doing what God has called us to do. The truth of the matter is that every one of us is deficient in certain areas. And so we need the input from the word. We need God to teach us. And so then we need to humble ourselves and put that into practice and, and do what he tells us to do. And uh, for some of us, it may be our, our knowledge. It may be uh, compassion for others. It may be uh, physical acts, wh whatever it is that God is speaking to us about, because we're all lopsided um, as Christians. So this morning, as we continue in our, our journey, though, we want to look at what it means to plan with God. And as you and I go through our lives, we plan. You know, I often tell the, the younger people that uh, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And that's a, a truism. It really is an uh, accurate statement. It's true. And you do need to plan. Uh, sometimes we overplan. Sometimes I'm accused of overplanning, but that's usually by people who don't plan. So um, I just take that with a grain of salt. Uh, but we do need to plan. And if you look through scriptures, you will see that there is planning. If you think about it, God is a phenomenal planner. He planned things down to the minutia. And so no Christian could really say you just trust God and go with it. And you just fly by the seat of your pants. That's not how it works. Um, Paul planned. The Apostle Paul did. Uh, but when God wanted him to go in a different direction, he was sensitive enough to God's planning, unlike some of the people we're going to see in our scriptures today, that he would alter his course. Now, sometimes God had to just flat out stop him. Um, and then he would get a, another wake-up call, you know, the, the dream from Macedonia. Come over here, you know. So we need to be sensitive to what God's calling us to do, and we need to plan with God. The biggest problem that we face um, as you grow up is that we begin to plan on our own. And even as, as young kids and students, I see this. And I've talked to a couple of our students about this, that we are constantly pressured into a mold of what we should chase after in life. And uh, you've heard me say it many times. Some of you probably get sick of it. But the sad fact is that in our culture, um, the things that are really pushed the most, um, especially for our, our young men, is that they would go into professional sports. Now, that's fine for a few, but when the whole culture is pushing in that direction and you look at the stats, you have to come to a realization, um, unless you're completely blind, that that is not what God is shouting to everybody. Uh, that is what the culture is shouting to everybody. And so we need to humble ourselves and see what is it that God wants us to do. We need to plan with God and not apart from God. R. Kent Hughes has said 
So pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even many, maybe most, Christians attend church, they marry, they choose their vocation, they have children, they buy and sell homes, they expand their portfolios, and they numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. Now, just think about that, especially if you haven't yet done any of these things yet. Okay, students, young people, um, should God have a say in who you marry? By all means, yes. Should he have a say in the house you purchase one day? Yes, he should. Where you live, when you move. Um, when we were doing the Believe series, you know, Randy Frazee is, is the guy behind that. And he's got several books that deal with uh, simplifying our lives and trying to be more in tune with what God wants us to do. And, and he talks in one of those books about the idea that so many people will, will uproot their family and move for a job to the other side of the, the state, the country, wherever, without ever considering their church family. Now, some of you, I just said that, and you're like, yeah, so what? Well, if you understand the scriptures and the idea of church family and being adopted into God's family, which, as I said before, most American Christians were really uh, bad at understanding that. If you understand that, then his statement will make more sense to you. We, we counsel with our immediate family, but we don't counsel with the family we're going to spend eternity with. We don't get any spiritual input from people about uprooting families and moving. I'm not saying you should never do that. I'm simply saying, as Randy would say, as I think that R.K. Hughes is even saying here, is where is God in the process? Do we plan with God, or we just have our own plans and agendas and we go about them? The first thing that we need to understand as we, we dig into this is that you need to plan purposely. You plan purposely, but you got to do it with God. Let's look at James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And what we're going to see here is that James is going to address the temptation to plan and live independently from God. We've already seen in the first chapter of James that temptations come our way because of the desires within us. <coughs> That we don't control, we don't limit these desires. So we just let them do what they want, and they build in. Tell me, guys, what, what do these unchecked desires lead to? Sin and death. And James is saying, we're in chapter 4 now, but you got to realize this is part of the same letter. right? They would have just read this all together, not broken it into five or eight weeks, whatever we're doing here. So James is saying, listen, these are some of the temptations that you're going to be tempted to, to do in life. You're going to be tempted to plan your whole life apart from God. You're just going to do what you want. You're going to make business plans and life plans, and you're not going to consider and consult God. James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. It says, come now, you who say, hey, today or tomorrow we'll travel to such and such a city, and we're going to spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like smoke that appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So it is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. Now, this passage of scripture that James, remember, he's, he's the half-brother of Jesus. So he's writing this passage to us. And he's saying, 
how is it that you are working through your life? How is it that you plan your life? So you think you're going to go do this or do that? You're going to have this business endeavor, and you're not even considering God. The life is a vapor. Do you not realize that all of these grandiose plans that you have, they could come to nothing because your life could end tonight. And I'm, I'm reminded of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which many Christians have memorized. You know, in all your ways, you do what? Acknowledge God in all your ways. To acknowledge him means that he's part of the planning process in your life. It means that you're looking to God, you're surrendering yourself to God and what he wants in your life. James is saying, you guys that are just going about your life and doing your own thing, okay, that's not how you live as a Christian. You need to rein that in. You need to humble yourself. And he even mentions this idea about bragging about it, and then he says that that is evil. You're boasting about this. Why is this evil? Because you're apart from God. God is not part and parcel of what you're doing. You're just planning your life apart from God. But yet you say, yep, I'm a Christian. I, I do what you know God says. I go to church. I do this. But he doesn't. You're a Sunday Christian, which is an oxymoron. There's no such thing. And so James says this is not how it can be. These vaporizing plans. James begins this section introducing hypothetical people who decide to go off to such and such a place and to trade and earn a profit. Now, you need to understand something. James is not saying you can't be in business and you can't make a profit. James is also not saying you just have if the Lord wills on the end of it, or Lord willing. So, yeah, I'm going to wherever, Lord willing. He's not saying you just tack those words on the end of it either. He's saying there needs to be a, a real radical change in how we go about our life and how we plan. That You need to be planning with God. Job said, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle in Job 7.6. They fly by, zip, zip. In another place, he says, as a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to the grave does not return in 7-9. Job understood this. You know, Job was a man who went through a lot of temptations and suffering and trials. And we'll talk about that when I get, I think, to my third point this morning. But Job also was a man, if you read the book of Job, who was known for living his life with God in mind. He would pray for his, his children that they might have sinned. He would pray for them. He would pray, and then he would also go help the poor. He would clothe the poor. He would invest his money. He was a very wealthy man, but he would invest it and, and help those who needed it. So Job understood how to live righteously and how to live with God. That's one of the reasons he was so perplexed by what was going on in his life. King David saying, my days are like an evening shadow in Psalm 102, verse 11. The shadow is there, but in a minute its shade fades and is swallowed before one dies by the night and is gone forever. The same psalm, he says in verse 3, for my days vanish like smoke, smoke, boom, gone. The mist that rises off the lawn in the morning, the smoke, the fog there and then it's gone because that's what your life is like you know we make these grand expectations and think we're going to live so long you know i think of the titanic you know when they built the titanic it was the the biggest most impressive ship and we all know what happened to it but the people that got on that ship had no expectation that that would be the last journey on this earth 
that that was their voyage to God when they embarked on that ship. They had no idea. In fact, if you know the story very well, they even boasted that nothing could sink this ship. Well, they were wrong. It went down on its maiden voyage. We're the same way. Yesterday in, in Pine Hill, there was another shooting. We've now had 13 this year in Pine Hills alone. That's not Orange County. It's Pine Hills. 50% um, increase. Now, the guy, I mean, we don't know the story yet, okay? But there was a guy that was shot, and then he drove across the street in his car and ran into a woman loading her groceries at the Save-A-Lot. Now, she's fine. He died. He didn't wake up that morning thinking, this is my last day. I don't know anything about the guy's family or life or anything. But he, like most of you, is probably anticipating that in a week, he'd be celebrating what? Yeah. But no. Yesterday afternoon, he saw God. Now, again, I don't know anything about the guy, so I don't know how it went after that. But... My point is, he wasn't planning on it, and neither were most of those other 13 people, probably none of them. Our life is but a vapor, James says. These vaporizing plans, <clears throat> James says that you need to understand this, and if you really understand this, you're going to alter how you plan your life. You're going to plan with God. You're going to plan purposely because your life is so short. Making plans for the future without ever considering or even asking what God has already planned for us. You know, Ephesians 2 is, is a great chapter in Scripture. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. 8 and 9 is, is a passage that a lot of people know. Verse 10, not so many know. 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that's a phenomenal passage of Scripture. It really helps us understand that there's nothing you can do to be saved, that, that God sent Jesus to do the work you could never do. You can't add to what Jesus did. Jesus did the work. It's done. That's why the song that we used to sing, It Is Finished, that's why Jesus on the cross said, It Is Finished, He's Paid It All, It's Done. Okay, that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And that is the truth. There's nothing else. You get into heaven on the coattails of Jesus, and that is the only way. But verse 10 tells us something else. Verse 10 actually connects and is very relevant to the whole message of James. Verse 10 says that the point of this, though, is that God has created good works for you to do. Not to save you, but for you to do. And that's why James is really an explanation even of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So the Apostle Paul wrote uh, Ephesians. And James wrote James. And some people think that James and, and Paul, they don't get along. They have two different ideas of faith and works and whatnot. They'd have no different ideas. It's the same idea through and through. And Martin Luther was just not understanding or not thinking clearly. You know, he thinks the book is a, a book of straw, he says. So in James, we see that we've already seen in the first three chapters that James says that we are first and foremost, if you're a Christian, submitted to God. Chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant, a slave, a doulos, a bondservant of God. He's already humbled himself, okay? He's getting there by faith, through Jesus. 
But then he says this, which is the, the rest of the book of James. But you can't just say you're a Christian and not live it. Your life has to show that you're following Jesus or there's something amiss. And so he's unpacking this for all these people. And whether it's how you treat the poor, how you treat the rich, what you do with your life, or today we're looking at the purpose and planning going on in your life. All of these are show me the fruit. Show me the good works that God has done in you. All through history, if you look at um, the Christians that are, are known or let's, let's say famous to some degree, why is it that they are famous to some degree? It's because of their what? Their what? It's their works, which is a reflection of their faith in Jesus. Why do Christians build hospitals? Why did William Booth start the Salvation Army and the whole thing that they do now with, with people on the streets and the, the rehab center? And why? Because he wants the message of Jesus to get to these people, and he wants to help them practically to get to a different and a better place in their life so they can better reflect Jesus Christ. That's why. Our actions can reflect what's going on inside, and that's what James is trying to get us to understand. What does God think about us going off track and doing our own thing in place of the good that he's... He views it as arrogant and boastful. So if you're not checking in with God about what he wants you to do, God thinks you're arrogant. Now, just think about it for a minute. God, the creator of the universe, right? The one who allowed you to be born. The one who saves you through Jesus Christ and gives you the Holy Spirit. According to Ephesians 2.10 and elsewhere in the Bible, he's already got plans for you. He's got things he wants you to do. And if you don't bother to check in with him and you're just going to do your own thing, that is a bit arrogant, isn't it? Thanks, God, for putting me here. Thanks, God, for saving me. Oh, you got a list for me to do? That's okay. i got my own list. I mean, that's what James is saying. One of the, the greatest obstacles that we face in, in doing the good plans that God has for us is allowing our desires and pleasures to run our lives. This is what James has been talking about. This is one of the temptations when you allow your desires to do whatever. So let me go back to what I said earlier. Our culture throws all these things at us. The American dream. That's been, that's been the plan for so many adults for a generation or two. We're going to get the nice house, the 2.3 kids, the two-car garage, the white picket fence, the pool in the backyard maybe, etc. All right? The American dream. Where's, where's God in that? That's the American dream. That's not the God dream. Right? We've got to get back to what God wants. Bragging and believing that we can do what we want and what we have is because of our own effort. First John 2.16 calls this the pride of life and lists it as one of the three temptations. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, it is pride of life. Bragging about our own life, doing something in life. You remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30 to 35? Nebuchadnezzar got up there, and as king of Babylon, the world empire, he dominated the world, okay? I don't know, I don't know how big or bad you ever think you're going to be, okay? But Neb was bad, okay? And I mean bad as in good, right? The way you mean it, but he was also bad as in bad. So he ruled the world. So he's up there one day strolling along the top of his palace and just looking at Basically, as far as he could see, he owns and rules all of it. 
And what did he start doing? He started bragging and boasting the very things that James says we should not be doing about how he had built all this, about how great he was for what he had done. Immediately, God humbled him. God put him in his place, and he turned him basically into an animal so that he would understand that he was a creature created by God, and that God was the one who had given him everything. We learned previously in James, every good gift comes down from who? The Father of lights from above. That's what it comes from. So as James continues, he's saying that we need to be looking at God, vaporizing plans. Is that where you want your plans to go? Vaporize? Or do you want your plans to be something that comes to, to fruition that has some benefit from it at the end of the day? The expression, you know, if it's the Lord's will, that doesn't show up in the Old Testament. So you're like, well, what should I say? Do I, do I just say, if it's the Lord's will? No. You can't just tack that on, okay? It's like uh, people that just pray a prayer and think that the prayer is some magic thing that's going to do something for them. It, that's not how it is. God, God's not a genie, okay? You don't rub the lamp. You, you don't just throw a prayer out. It's not a fortune cookie. You don't just tack on if it's the Lord's will. All right? It's not how it works. Um, Paul promised the Ephesians. He said, I'll come back if it's God's will. Now, what's he saying? He's not just tacking it on there. He's saying, okay, the plan is I'm going to come back. All right, I want to help you grow more, but I'm not sure if God's going to actually allow that later on. And we know that Paul's life took several different turns because God intervened in it. To the Corinthians, he said, I'll come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. That's 1 Corinthians 4.19. And so there's several different places that he says this. But in similar instances, he talks confidently about his future plans without using the phrase. So just because he didn't use the phrase, does that mean he wasn't considering God's will? No, and that's the point. Okay, you don't have to say if God wills after you say everything. So you say, yeah, I'm going to go to uh, you know Valencia next year. Oh wait, you didn't say if God wills, you just sin. No, that's not how it works. All right, so let's let's not get into that mindset either. The the mindset you need to understand is simply this: Did you talk to God about that? Okay, you're going to go to Valencia next year. Okay, that's fine. But my question to you is this. Have you talked to God about that? Have you prayed about that? Have you sought the, the counsel of Scripture about that? Okay, great. If you have, yeah, go. All right? And then be willing the whole time that if God intervenes, he might redirect you somewhere else. That's what we're talking about. The right mindset, dependence of, on God, is more important than just saying the right words. David inquired of the Lord regarding battle plans on a fairly regular basis. You can read in 1 Samuel 30, verse 8, Verse 8, he, he says to God, should I pursue them? And God answers him, yes, pursue them. You'll conquer. In 1 Samuel uh, 23, verse 2, the same thing. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, and in 5, uh, 23, should I go up? Should I fight? Yes, yes, go, go. All right? Other times, God says no. Steve Runge says about making plans, he says, James is concerned with making plans for the future without ever considering or asking what God has already planned for us. That's what I want you to get this morning. Ephesians 2.10. God's already planned something for you. You need to check in with God. You need to plan with God, and you need to plan purposely with God. You don't just walk around aimlessly. Let's get some plans going on. All right? I know that sometimes it's frustrating. There's times in my life where I've known exactly what I thought God wanted me to do with next. And there's times in life 
where I'm just scratching my head saying, God, I don't understand. Don't jump ahead of God. If you don't understand yet, you should probably just wait and stay where you're at until he shows you the next step. The next thing I think we need to understand is you need to plan philanthropically. Now, that's a big word. So philanthropically simply means generously. Okay, It means to give, to plan philanthropically. This addresses the temptation to live independently from God as it relates to your money and your possessions. So not only are you tempted to do your own thing and make your own plans, but you're also tempted, oh, it's my money. I can do what I want with it. So Cooper got a little bit of money yesterday. And um, the question becomes, well, what are you going to do with it? So, of course, we're his parents. So, you know, we want to help him understand that God comes first. So, uh, well, the first thing that's going to happen is God's getting a cut of that. And we also want him to understand that <clears throat> although life is a vapor, we should have some plans with God, all right? And we should not just spend everything immediately, okay? Not instant gratification. And so also uh, savings is going to get some of that. And then, yes, you know, you can use some to buy something else, okay? And so <clears throat> this is something that uh, you probably had parents that when you were younger, they tried to teach you the same thing. You know, as I col- told Cooper yesterday, um, <clears throat> That's how I bought my first car. My mom made me. I didn't have a choice. I, I'm pretty sure. I think all my birthday money was snatched out of my hand as soon as I got it and uh, went into a secret drawer where she kept all my money, um, all my birthday money, I should say. So that enabled me to purchase my first car. Um, we have to instill these values to plan philanthropically. You cannot serve God and money is what James wants us to understand. Okay, the question is, are you a giver or are you a taker? Are you a hoarder? And this is what James gets at. Just hoarding stuff upon ourselves so that we can consume it selfishly instead of sharing it and helping others. Look at James chapter 5, verse 1 through 6 with me. He says, come now, you rich people. Now weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is ruined and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and your gold are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously in the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist. Here James lays it out. Starts out, you rich person, you. And then he lays into him. It's kind of like Amos does when he says, you fat cows of Bashan. That's really in the Bible. Look it up. Amos 4. So James is saying, you have all this money. You have all this wealth. What are you doing with it? Are you planning with God? And these people are not. Are you planning philanthropically? These people are not. They're consuming it upon themselves. They're taking it, and they're using it for whatever they want with no concern for God, God's people, or God's plans. Well, one of the points James says is judgment is coming. So you need to wake up. We looked a couple weeks ago at the fact that James repeatedly, when he has warnings, indicates that Jesus is coming back, and you have to give an account to Jesus. 
So one of the things is there is this aspect of an accountability, a little bit of fear that should be there, that God is coming back, and you have to answer to God for what you did with your life. So if you're not going to plan in your life and you're not going to be philanthropic with your life, well, guess what? I really don't need to get too stressed out about it. Now, as, as a Christian, okay, if you're my brother or sister, I, I need to exhort you to do so. I need to try to correct you, maybe even rebuke you. Um, but you're going to have to answer to God at the end of the day, not me. He's the judge. I'm actually not your judge. Okay, I'm your brother who's here to help you stay out of trouble. But God's the judge. So judgment is coming. And so all through here, James is saying, you better be you better be on guard here, all right? Come now, you rich. Weep and cry, he says, over your miseries. Just wait. Yeah, they're coming. You don't have any miseries right now because you're too wealthy? You just avoid them all? Well, your miseries are coming. Remember the reversal we talked about back in chapter 1? He says, oh, you're poor, but you're a Christian. Well, that's okay. See, you've been humbled. God's going to exalt you. Remember that great reversal? Oh, and you're so rich and you're bragging about it? Well, you're going to be humbled because you're going to have a reversal too. So which one would you rather have? You want to be a wealthy braggart without God now, and you're going to be humbled big time, or would you rather be poor and have God, and you'll be exalted later? You know? Tough one, right? But, I mean, what do you want for the long term? We've got to think long term here, all right? Because what's coming? Jesus is coming. You know, gold and silver weren't the only forms of currency back then. Clothing was. So you read sometimes in Scripture that they gave clothing. So in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 20 to 24, Naaman's off officers, or they offer clothing along with silver to Elisha and his servant as payment. Elisha's like, no, we don't need it. The servant, oh, I, I want that stuff, man. He runs off to try to get it. Um, clothing. Just think about it. I mean, you'd accept it, right? Nice clothes. Same thing. They had nice clothes. That was part of a payment. They also would store up crops and other commodities as a source of revenue. So all this is going to turn to nothing. It's dust. Moth-eaten. It's going to become no good. You need to have a lasting investment to invest in. In heaven or earth is the question. Where, where is it that you're investing? Okay, you're just going to store all your stuff here? You're going to build bigger barns and storehouses? Well, we know Jesus talked to a guy about that. He said, you don't even know it. Tonight, your life's ending. What good is your new barn going to do you? So are you investing in heaven or are you investing in the earth? And this is one of the things that you, you really got to take away from this portion of James is that whether you've got $10 or $10 million, you still have a choice of how you invest it. Is, is it just for here or is it for eternity's sake? Throughout the book, James offers a very sobering look at the detrimental influence that money can have. <coughs> now, Money, just to correct some mistaken theology that gets out there, money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's the love of it. Why? Because it's an unchecked desire. It's a desire that you're not controlling. It's a desire that you're allowing through temptation to take over you. And what does that lead to? Sin and death. Money by itself, though, you could use it for good or bad. You could not have wealth or have wealth, and in either case, you could have a major problem with what James is talking about. You know, I, I don't know if you, you know much about Hobby Lobby. Um, you, you will a little bit after I'm done with you this morning. But 
probably most of you never heard of David Green. But David Green is the founder of Hobby Lobby. Uh, he started by making picture frames in his garage, and then when the orders began to increase, um, I think he paid his kids like seven cents a picture frame uh, to assemble them. This was many years ago, and eventually that got large enough that he started Hobby Lobby. Um, they now have some 700 plus stores. Uh, but this man um, is amazing. In fact, he might be becoming one of my modern day heroes. He's, uh, he is very wealthy. He's currently uh, 75 years old. He's the founder and owner of Hobby Lobby. His son, Mart, is the founder of Mardell Christian Educational Supply and Every Tribe, Every Nation, which we'll talk about in a minute. He's currently, um, David Green is currently number 81 on the Forbes list of top 400 wealthiest Americans. His net worth is $6.5 billion. Hobby Lobby, right? So, yes? You can look it up. All right. So, he comes from a preacher's family. The rest of his uh, siblings are preachers. He is in the business world. He comes from a poor background. When his uh, parents were teaching him, um, what he learned and, he, and his wife learned from her parents was um, even if they had next to nothing, they always gave to God. Um, when I became a Christian, the first thing I did is I started giving to God, no matter how much or little I was making. David Green says this. He says, I want to know that I've affected people for eternity. I believe I am. I believe once someone knows Christ as their personal Savior, I've affected eternity. I matter 10 billion years from now. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying people matter. He's saying people matter because people have eternity. He's saying people are going to live somewhere forever, whether it's heaven or hell. And so he wants to invest in people. And you're like, well, well how's he doing? You just told me he's this really wealthy guy. He owns Hobby Lobby. Yeah, he does. But see, here's the cool thing. Here's why this guy is awesome. Because you know what he does through that business and with that business? He has helped, I can't tell you how many churches and Christian ministries, including uh, Liberty University, including um, Saddleback, including, um, uh, I just lost the name of... Uh, the other one, Oral Roberts, all of these schools, churches, etc., purchase property, etc., for their Christian ministries. Not only that, he is putting scripture into the hands of non-believers. People often ask, how are you going to get a Bible into the world? He says, we're doing it. Through foundations he supports, he's already distributed nearly 1.4 billion copies of gospel literature in more than 100 countries, mostly Africa and Asia. The One Hope Foundation targets children ages 4 to 14 with scripture tailored to them, while Every Home for Christ sends evangelists with Bible booklets door-to-door -door in some of the poorest countries on earth. It's not like you give them that but don't give them food. He says you do both. But the priority is clear. He said, if I die without food or without eternal salvation, I want to die without food. Now, so what is this billionaire doing with his money? He's investing in eternity. He also has one of the largest Bible and Bible artifact collections in the world. And through his son and another foundation they have, 
Um, they're opening next year the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., which will house all of this. Not only that, there's, yeah, that's the Bible Museum that they're working on. Um, not only does he do all of that, but I think the percent is, if I can remember right, um, I think it's half. Is that what I told you, honey? Okay, get this. Half of everything Hobby Lobby brings in before taxes, so it goes to God before taxes, half of everything that comes in goes into missions. That's from Hobby Lobby. So there's a couple of things here. You don't have to be Christian to be rich, okay? There's lots of non-Christians that are, are very rich, okay? In fact, in the Forbes article I was reading, they, they talked about another one in that article. So you could be very wealthy and, and not follow Jesus. But he will tell you, back in 1985, Hobby Lobby was struggling. And this is very interesting because when Forbes asked him about that, they just chalked it up to business leadership issues. Here's what he says. This, this is exactly what James says. He says he started to get arrogant and prideful about his business. And he believes that because he did that, God began to take his hand off from it and say, okay, you run it. And when he humbled himself, things reversed again. This is exactly what James is saying. If you try to run things your own way apart from me, you see what happens. Now, again, you could be wealthy, 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 okay? Warren Buffett's very wealthy, okay? Soros is very wealthy. But what's going to happen to them? We just read it in James. What's coming down the pike? They're going to meet Jesus. Yeah, some of them are agnostic. They're like, I don't know if Jesus exists. Well, you'll find out soon enough he does. So they're not going to take their money with them. And James is saying, listen, what are you focusing on? Because your life is a vapor, and you're headed out the door very quickly. And on the other side of the door, by the way, is Jesus. So what's he going to say to you? I love the fact that this guy is pouring millions of dollars into the kingdom work. He's actually, he's part of a group. I'm going to show you a video in just a second. He's, he's part of a group for every tribe, every nation, and I'm... I'm going to show you this video about it. Just one second, okay? Um, I have a friend who actually works for this group of people. There's, a, there's nine or, or so of these very wealthy billionaires, okay? You, you probably never knew this existed. And these billionaires are Christian, and they started this organization, and, and this Every Tribe, Every Nation thing is part of it. And they have people, one of my friends and, and now works for this, and what he does is he makes sure that their millions of dollars that they are giving is actually increasing at a very good rate the amount of translation work. So my friend was just down here, and he was meeting with Wycliffe. And the reason he's meeting with Wycliffe is because Wycliffe is one of the largest translation organizations. They're not the only one in the world, okay? And so these people are billionaires. They're sending him. To talk with Wycliffe, and Wycliffe works off from donations, okay? So they have expectations, and they want to see the scripture into the hands of lost people. This is the guy that runs Hobby Lobby, that owns it. 
So when people are out there buying their crafts from Hobby Lobby, they don't realize this, but half of every dollar they spend, give or take, is actually going to buy Bibles and send translators around the world to learn more about Jesus Christ. Now, that's what I call being on mission with God. That's what I call planning with God, being purposeful with God, phil philanthropic investments. Watch this short video. It's about two and a half minutes on um, every tribe, every nation. Our lives tell a story, but beyond that, they play a part in the bigger story, the story. When Jesus came to all the people, they exposed their blindness. They gave his life to give a whole new story for all of us. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we are going to share the story of our every word, every family, and every heart. But here's the problem. Today, over a billion people are left out, living without the full story of God's birth and resurrection. amazing the influence that you can have when you put God first. What does Jesus have to say about this? He says in Matthew 6 verses 19 through 21 Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where are you collecting stuff up? Okay, You're collecting it somewhere. Right? We all have probably too much stuff in our houses, but what else are you collecting up? Says, are you collecting it in heaven or are you collecting it here on earth? Because here, it's just going to go away. In heaven, though, it stays. 
Nothing perishes in heaven. Nobody steals in heaven. It's secure. What are you investing in? In Luke chapter 12, we see Jesus illustrate exactly this idea of how hoarding up wealth here on earth is not going to do you any good. In Luke 12, verses 18 through 21, he says, I'll do this, the guy says. I'll tear down one of my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Now, notice it's grain and goods. It's not cash, right? So grain and goods, though, it's worth what? It's money. You sell it, right? So I'll store them in alert. And then I'll say to myself, hey, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. In other words, just pour this upon myself, okay? I'm just going to use this for me, sit back, and have a cushy life. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. In the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasures for himself. And is not rich, generous, philanthropic toward God. You hoard on earth, you set up for heaven, and you'll gain nothing of eternal significance. Yep, it'll last you a little while, maybe. But your life is but a vapor, and you know not when God is going to call it home. Stolen blessings. James moves on, and he talks about how these wealthy people, these landowners, have not paid their workers. Now, this is another interesting thing. Just as a contrast with Hobby Lobby, you know what the minimum wage at Hobby Lobby is? They don't need a federal mandate. The lowest person at Hobby Lobby is at least $13 an hour. They raise it every year. Why? Because God is blessing him with his business. Keep in mind already, okay? He's already giving away 50% pre-tax, okay? Then what does he do? You don't start off 8 or 9 bucks or even 10 bucks an hour there at Hobby Lobby. It's 13 an hour, and he raises it every year. I'm thinking I should go down to Hobby Lobby and get a job. So what's James saying, though? James is saying, listen, what's going on? you got all that money that you're sitting on, okay? You're hoarding that wealth, and you haven't paid these guys working in your fields. And so while you're sitting on this, you're having this luxurious life, really it's stolen blessings. You're stealing from them. Well, I don't, I don't know if David Green, you know, <coughs> got this from this passage or not, but he obviously understands this concept. And he's going to make sure he's not stealing from the very people that are working to help make Hobby Lobby what it is. Instead, he's paying them. Here they forsake their obligations so they can continue to indulge their selfish desires. This is exactly what Amos 4 talks about when the prophet calls the people, you fat cows of Bashan. He's saying, you are sitting there and you luxurious living and lifestyles, and you are just heaping it upon yourself. Okay? You're just gorging yourselves. It's like the gospel story of, of the rich man and Lazarus is outside the beggar, outside his gates, and does he do anything for him? Does he even give him a scratch? Well, the dogs come and lick his sores. Well, he has these luxurious parties inside. <coughs> we have to ask ourselves, you might not be a landowner, you might not have people working for you, but we have a lot of very poor people in our community. What, what do we do about it? James portrays the rich as more interested in continuing their overextended lifestyle than in honoring God and the workers with the wealth due to them. Stolen from servants to satisfy their selfish desires. The roots of wars and fighting among you. As James has said earlier, 
satisfying selfish desires. What did he say in James 1? Our selfish desires that are not checked lead us to what? Sin and death. This picture that James paints leads us to our, our third point this morning. That we need to plan patiently. Why patiently? Because yes, Jesus is coming back, but the fact is you don't know when. You don't know when your life is ending, and you don't know when Jesus is coming back. And the, and the truth is, it's very easy for us on this earth, after we've been waiting for 2,000 years and he still hasn't come back, it's easy for us to begin to think he's not. But you have to look at scripture, you have to look at what has gone on through all of church history, and realize that his timing is not ours. Look at James 5, verses 7 through 11. This year addresses the temptation to view this world as all there is, forgetting that true justice and peace happen only when Jesus returns. So notice for each of these points this morning, it's addressing a temptation that we have in our own self, in our own evil desires. He says here in James 5, 7, he says, Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. And see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers, do not complain about one another, so you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Here James tells us, listen, God is coming back, and you might get weary, you might get tired, but don't. You need to endure. Job endured. The prophets endured, despite the horrible things that happened to them. And you need to realize he is coming back. There is a judgment coming. Be patient and wait upon God. Judgment is near. In these verses, James offers a series of exhortations based on a single motiva- motivation. Who's coming back? Jesus coming back. So people get ready, right? This is the motivation. He's coming back. Should you defraud people? No, you, you could die right after that transaction. Be patient. Don't complain. Watch your words. The Lord's judgment is near. What's the response to suffering? When you go through suffering and you have to endure. You know, Job, the whole, the whole book of Job is Job enduring this suffering. Is, is God righteous or is he not? What's going on with Job? He loses his family. He loses wealth. He loses all of these things. His wife says, curse God and die. And Job says, no. Naked I came into this world, naked I will leave this world. I will praise him in all of that. And we're being exhorted by James to do the same thing. Do you rebel and complain? No, James has specifically said you are not to rebel and you are not to complain. Do you criticize each other and talk down to each other? James says, no, you are not to do so. Do you get even? No, you do not. Vengeance is God's. Instead, you are patient. You're like, yeah, but they might get away with it. They might, for now. But what will God do? In the end, he will even all the scales of justice. That's what he does. These examples of suffering that he lists include Job, endurance from the prophets, and an example of farming. When you plant a crop, you have to wait until it grows. And the farmer must ultimately rely upon who? Who must the farmer really rely upon for a bountiful crop? God. Because who brings the rain? God. No rain, no crops. And so you must rely upon God to provide that. We must rely upon God for the strength in our own lives. We must 
plan patiently, knowing that God could change the plans at any time, knowing that Jesus could call us home, knowing that Jesus could return. Any of those could happen. R.T. Kendall has said every trial has a purpose, a design, and a lesson. And when you're going through this in life and you have to endure, maybe it's suffering at someone else's hands. Maybe it's simply waiting and waiting and waiting for the door to open for you. Whatever it is, God is building you into a mature Christian. And the truth is that I don't like it any more than you like it sometimes. But if we would latch on to what the Scripture says, that God is building us into a more mature person to be complete Christians, we would be able to remember that and endure. How did the prophets endure? How did Job endure? Because Job clung to the truth of who God was. When I'm tempted to to leave or, or to do something else, I go back to the question that I always say is the most important question. Who is Jesus? If Jesus is God and he has the words of life and truth, where else can I go? What else is there? Once you make your decision about Jesus, it determines the course of the rest of your life. And so we continue. We endure through this. So, in summary, you can see that James is exhorting us through all of his examples, through the illustrations, through the harsh comments he makes about the wealthy, that we need to plan with God. We plan purposely, philanthropically, and patiently so that we would not give in to these temptations, so that we would not um, let our own desires take over, but instead so that we would follow God's plan for our life. Guys, he has something specific in mind for you. I don't know what the specifics are he has planned for you, but he does. He has a list of things, so to speak, that he desires for you to do, each one of you, starting now. And if we would be faithful to him, if we would seek his face, like David saw in his face. God, should I go here? Should I do this? Let God prepare you for the next work that he has planned for you. And in the meantime, do what he's called you to do or put right in front of you to do. Let me pray for you. Father, we come to you this morning and, and we thank you that you have...